Well, good morning, everyone. And um, this past weekend, Friday, Saturday, our student ministries got together and had a retreat. And <clears throat> sometimes you, there's really no evidence that that took place in our building. But when you're sitting in the front row and you're thinking about focusing on the cross, I'm not sure what this is all about. But anyway, there's probably an explanation coming. Where's Nate at? I know he's around here somewhere. Anyway. Um, so how many of us would say that I understand God? I get him completely. I really, there's no, no kind of surprises from God. I kind of always can predict what he's going to do. I was hoping no one would raise their hand. There's a term um, in theological circles um, attributed to God's character, the fact that he is what's called incomprehensible. In other words, it's really impossible for us to grasp as finite human beings the infinite God himself. So I kind of thought as we kind of get into our passage today, there's an illustration of that um, that I can remember a couple of years ago. So uh, my wife and I have a three-year-old grandson. His name is Levi. And um, when he was just a toddler um, a couple of years ago, um, I, I remember one time um, our daughter and son-in-law and he were over at our house and they're getting ready to leave. So we go outside and we go into the driveway where their vehicle is and we're probably doing, you know, the hugs and the goodbyes and things like that. And um, Levi kind of runs around the back side of the vehicle and his side door is open probably in preparation for him to getting into the car. And I kind of follow him and see that he has decided he's going to push this car door shut. And as you know how car doors work, it takes a little bit of momentum to go in, but once it starts going, it goes fast, right? And so he had his left hand on the door, and then as he's going forward, his right hand comes to kind of the side of the car with a couple of fingers, like right in the way of the car door in. Me being super papa with cat-like reflexes, superhuman speed, I rush in there and knock his hand away to the rescue, right? Okay, so now if you have an infant or a toddler or whatever, you can probably guess what took place right then and there. I scared him to death. I mean, I frightened him, I scared him, I prevented him from doing what he wanted to do. I probably hurt him a little bit when I grabbed his hand. And so I, my, my immediate thought was, like, all this work I've been doing to be a trusted grandfather, one that he would run to whenever you know, he walked through the door or whatever, now is undone because... Think about this for a moment. How he understood that event and how I understood that event, completely different. See, my motivation was for his best interest, right? But that's not the way he interpreted that. Not at all. And if you consider the fact that there's this gap between Levi and, my, and me in terms of our comprehension and our ways and our methods and our thinking... The difference between you and me, I'm sorry, between us and God is even greater. 
our ability to trust in God, to hope in him when we just think about God's character is sometimes relatively easy, but it becomes almost, well, it commonly becomes incredibly difficult when there's pain involved, when there's disappointment involved, when things don't go according to our plan, and we begin to question God and wonder what he is up to. There's a a passage. Well, actually, let's do this, because last week, uh, I had us do this. I'm going to do this again. So if you've got your Bible with you, okay, I'm going to actually do the same thing I did last week. I'm going to ask you to open to Daniel chapter 8. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask this side of the room, would you turn to Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse 15? This side of the room, would you open to Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse 27? And so this side of the room, I'm going to ask you to look at that, that passage, that verse, and say, I'm going to ask you, what is Daniel's desire? What does he seek? Someone call out. What is he seeking? What is he hoping for? What's he want? Someone call it out. Uh, understanding, meaning, right? He's looking for understanding. He's looking for meaning. He's he received this vision, and he doesn't get it. So what happens between verse 15 and 27 is this. God sends the angel Gabriel. I mean, Gabriel. Gabriel is the one who comes to, to Mary when she's going to have baby Jesus, right? And Gabriel explains the vision. And then we come to verse 27. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of do the fill in the blank, all right? It says this, and he was appalled by the vision and... Somebody say, what does it say? What's that? Beyond understanding. He did not understand. Do you hear that? He did not understand. God sends an angel, Gabriel, to explain this vision, and he does not understand. Now, I don't know what that exactly what that means. That, that might mean, like, I don't understand. Like, I wasn't paying attention. Like, Gabriel, I was distracted by your wings, you know, I didn't really pay attention or whatever. Or it might mean probably like this. I understand, but I don't understand. I think that's kind of what's going on in Daniel's life when he sees this vision. There is in a sense that I'm to trust in God. I'm to hope in God. But what you have revealed to me is so painful, so difficult, so challenging. I have a hard time understanding this. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Daniel is appalled by this horrific vision, and he does not understand. And the challenges for you and me is this. Today, you might not be going through something very challenging. But either you have or you will in the future. And what do we do when... God's plans don't match our plans.
What do we do with that? Would you join me in prayer? Father God, this question about who you are as an incomparable, comprehensible God is oftentimes challenging for us, God, when what you have for us doesn't measure up, doesn't match what we had hoped our lives or the lives of people around us looks like. And Father, as your word declares, we can say, at least intellectually, and God, would you help us to say this emotionally and with faith and in worship that God, we're grateful that your ways are not our ways because you are wiser, that your ways are not our ways. God, because you are more loving than we can imagine, that your ways are not our ways, God, because you are more holy than we are, because your ways, are God, are not our ways, because you are beyond that we, we can understand, and you are worthy of our hope and our trust and our faith. So, Father, would you use this message today, this passage today, and what it reveals about, God, your plans to shape our thinking, to mold us into a right view, God, of who you are and cause us to trust. And when difficult times do come, to worship you through it, to hope in you, pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, as we put together this message today, I kind of thought what we really need to do is we need to go through the whole passage before we come back to the applications specifically for us. And that is because there's a historical context for this passage. It's something that Daniel is going through, and I don't think we can fully grasp for ourselves until we fully grasp what it must have been like for Daniel. So if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to start at the very beginning. And let's walk through this passage. It says this. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So the third year. That means that if we look back at, at chapter 7, verse 1, that was the first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar would be the son of the guy who followed Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about this last week. The chapters 7 and 8 chronologically fall between chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel. And so what is happening is that um, it says the vision appeared to me, Daniel, and Daniel has received a couple of these different visions. Daniel was probably maybe 70 years old at this point in time. So he's getting to be an old man. He's getting up there in years. He's been in, in Babylon for about 55 years himself, probably. You also have to remember this. We'll see this in chapter 9, that he recalls reading the, from, the Jeremiah, from the prophet Jeremiah, who says in the chapter 29 that, that they would be here for 70 years in captivity. It also says there that we should work for and pray for the welfare of the city, Okay? So that's where Daniel is. So as you can imagine, he's anticipating maybe we're about 10, 12, 
15 years away from now being able to return back to Jerusalem. So that is an important context. But it says, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And he says this, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. Now, again, so he is in Babylon, and most likely the vision he has, he's been transported in the vision to this town called Susa. It says the capital, if you're in, if you see little um, notes in your Bible, it says, or the fortified city. At best, this capital is the capital of the province of Elam. It's not the capital of Babylon yet. Yet. Who knows? Um, and who would know that this, this, at this point in time, this relatively insignificant city would become something great, would be the capital, because what's going to happen is in about 15 years from now, this would be the place for which um, when Esther would live, we have the book of Esther, we have Nehemiah would come from this area, from Susa. But at this point in time, it's not that all that significant. It's kind of like Berthoud, you know? Who knows what Berthoud might become great years from now? Somebody ought to plant a church in Berthoud. Anyway, so that's what's, that's what's happening. And so it says this. So as I saw in the vision, I was at the Uli Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. We already talked about this last week, that this was identified as the Medo-Persian Empire. And we said, we know this for a fact, because in verse 20 of this chapter, it identifies as these are the kings of Media and Persia. And this idea of two horns, one higher than the other, one coming up other than you know, one before the other, is a perfect illustration of exactly what took place. The Medes had a first power, then the Persians had even greater power, and they came up after that. And then verse 4 says, And I saw the ram charging westward. Okay, If you look at your, your maps, you would see it makes sense. They would come westward and northward and southward. And it says, no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Again, thinking about this, the perspective that Daniel would have. He's longing that the Babylonian Empire would no longer have the influence over his land, his country, his city from which he came. And he hears this news that another kingdom is coming. Now look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Okay, we know, again, later on, verse 21, it says that the goat is the king of Greece. We know, historically speaking, that this is Alexander the Great. And when it says without touching the ground, it speaks of the speed at which this kingdom moved west or eastward and took over these lands. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Okay, now, we said this, that the Bible doesn't tell us specifically this is Alexander the Great. History tells us. So what had happened is the Medo-Persia had moved, again, westward, had gone continued to expand its territories, and actually in 480 B.C. had invaded Greece. Now, we're going to move again through history and look at that in 334, okay? Greece again becomes, becomes now moving back the other direction. 
And so then Alexander the Great, who was, was a magnificent conqueror, swept east and north and, and, and south and took over this land. That's what we know from history. Let's look at verse 7. It says, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. What's that all about? Well, if you know history, what happens is that Alexander the Great suddenly dies. He's roughly about age 32, and he's actually probably in Babylon when he dies. He's got four generals. Those four generals is is how the kingdom is then divided up. Just as scripture describes this, hundreds of years in advance. It's pretty amazing. This is exactly what took place. Now, let's look at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, probably a reference to Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. As, a, as we look at history, it doesn't take much for us to figure this thing out of what this is referencing to. And across the board, scholars will recognize that this is a reference to this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, excuse me. Antiochus Epiphanes reigned from 175 to 164 B.C., One of his goals was to do this, to eradicate in all the lands that they controlled any sense of other religions than Greek mythology as we would know it, and to impart culture, Greek culture, wherever they would go. Interestingly, our New Testament is not written in Latin, which is Rome conquered these lands later on, But so pervasive was this this work that he would replace culture is that our New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek, which is common Greek. That's how effective he was. And so what he did in 168 B.C., he came to Jerusalem and killed maybe as many as 80,000 Jews. He came into the temple and brought a statue of Zeus And probably the worst thing that ever could have happened in the mind of a Jewish worshiper, he brought in a pig and slaughtered it on the altar of God. He desecrated the temple of God. 
making it null and void for anybody to worship God through sacrifices in that temple. That's what he did. Now, pretty dramatic, and as you can picture what Daniel would be going through as he imagines what's going to take place over several hundred years and what this would mean. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? You see, there's an understanding and comprehension of the severity of this transgression against the temple of God. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let me just say this. During that particular time, um, history will tell us that there was a family, the Maccabeans, and they engineered a revolt against the Greek rules at that point in time. And there was kind of an overthrow temporarily. And they came into the temple and they cleansed it and were able to then reassert the temple worship, which lasted then until AD 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Coming soon in December, when you see Hanukkah and those, that celebration, that's what this is all about. That's why Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It's in reference to this particular event. Now, the question is, where's the 2,300 evenings and mornings? And let's be honest. In apocryphal literature, there's times when it's very difficult to figure out the timing of weeks and days and months and years and all of that. And so I would say that having read lots of different versions and opinions on this, at best I would say that most likely it has to do with the roughly seven years, a little bit less than that, from the time when Antiochus Epiphanes began until he was no longer was in reign. That's the best we can kind of come up with. But let me just say this kind of as a conclusion of 1 through 14. This is remarkable of how God puts forth in his word what is exactly going to take place in hundreds of years from now. It is so remarkable that people cannot believe it. As a matter of fact, if you took a comparative religion class from a secular college or university, you would be told that, that because biblical prophecy is impossible, this book of Daniel could not have been written in the 6th century B.C. Because this is impossible. It's remarkable what happens when you interpret Scripture and you take God out of Scripture. And that's exactly what takes place. And so there is an understanding and a layer of this presupposition laid upon so much of, well, biblical prophecy that things are reinterpreted. And so because of the amazing accuracy, it's assumed this was written afterwards and then attributed back to Daniel. But we know this is a reminder of God's amazing faithfulness 
his knowledge of the future and worthy, worthiness of trusting in him. So now, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, probably an angelic being. Some have guessed maybe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Who knows? But we know that essentially God orchestrates what's going to take place. Verse 16, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. I want to just kind of note the word end there, because it appears here and then two more times. It raises a question a little bit about the understanding of what this all involves, and in reality, is chapter 8 all complete in the past, or is there more alluding to in the future? Here we go, verses 18. It says this, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the point of time of the end. That's where it gets a little bit confusing. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Median Persian. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Here we go, verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Again, this is reference back to what we had read about earlier. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand. This is, again, that picture of what is described as the abomination of the desolation, okay? It's a transgression that is against the holiness of God in the temple. We'll see a reference to this again in chapter 9. And one of the reasons I say, is this completed with Antiochus Epiphanes? Or is there more to come? It's because we know from the New Testament there is, like this, will take place again. I think the best way of thinking about this is Antiochus Epiphanes is an Antichrist, knowing that there is the Antichrist coming in the future. And it ends this way. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I think when we kind of walk in Daniel's sandals, sir. We envision his vision. We can't help but have that same thought. There's these promises and this opinion, these thoughts about God that he has and what the future would look like. And this is full of disappointment. This is full of anguish. This is full of tragedy. So what can he do with it? 
and what should we do with it? There's three things I want to point out, and it has to do with what we call our, our, our main idea. There's three aspects of that main idea. So here they are. The first one is this. So actually, let me just repeat the, the main idea. The main idea is this, that God's plan reveals his sovereign faithfulness to discipling his own. And so the first piece of it is this, that we must trust in God's sovereignty even when our eyes tell us something different. Let me say that again. Got to grab that hold of this. We must trust in God's sovereignty even when our eyes tell us something different. In parenthesis, I'm going to kind of capture something that God tells us. God tells us, I am always at work. Okay, take a look at this. See what our eyes tell us and see what Daniel's eyes told him. 8, 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Do you hear that? There's nothing anybody can do against this ram and the kingdom that reigns. There is a sense almost like hopelessness as that's expressed. Verse 7, notice this though. In verse 7, it tells us this. I'm going to jump near to the latter half of that verse. And the ram had no power to stand before him. Remember the ram who no one could rescue from? Now he's on the other end of the stick. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down. He, obviously this is the, the, the goat, and, and he cast him down to the, to the ground and trampled on him. And this, the phrase again is mentioned, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And look at it again, how dramatic this becomes, this vision of Daniel and how hopeless it seems. Because in verse 11, it says this. It, the great, the, the goat, became even as great as the prince of hosts. It's probably a reference to God or at least angelic hosts. That's how great he appears to be. That, again, is repeated in verse 25. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's what it appears like. But we got to see God's sovereignty at hand. We got to see his vision. And see, when we read the word vision in the book of Daniel, it's a reminder that God sees, he knows. And here's the reality. There is no difference between God's knowledge and God's sovereignty. You see, God knows because God rules. Do you hear that? He knows because he oversees and he's sovereign. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does all he pleases. And so we're reminded of this Verse 24 and 25, 24 says, this power shall be great, but not by his own. Where does that power come from with the goat and this horn? We'll see in chapter 10, this is demonic power. But I want you to see verse 25. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. 
because no human hand can do it. Only God can reign and rule. And in the midst of what we see as overwhelmingly evil or awful or terrible, there's a God who continues to reign sovereignly, even when our eyes tell us something different. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us this, that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Secondly, we must trust in God's discipling even when his methods make no sense to us. Again, in parenthesis, I've kind of said that God is saying this. He's saying, trust me and follow me. See, that's the definition of being a disciple. That's why I use the word discipling. The definition of a disciple is one who trusts God and one who's following after him, even when it doesn't make sense. And this is what we know is true is when we study God's word that God will go to extreme measures to get us to trust and follow him. And why is that? It's because eternity is at stake. This life is short. Eternity is forever. So sometimes we're just not going to understand his methods. and They're not going to make sense to us. And this is exactly what takes place for Daniel as he looks at these visions. Look at this, verse 13. How can this be of God? How can he allow this? Then I heard a holy one speaking. For how long is the vision concerning the regular bird offering, the transgressions that make desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? How can that be? This is easy for us to miss this. But I'm, I'm going to, up on the screen, you're going to see kind of a reference to some terms that are used in verses 12 and 13 and 19. Verse 12 says it this way. And a host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. Now, depending on your translation, it doesn't always say it that way. Look at verse 13. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? We can kind of see in 12 and 13 the reference point that Daniel has of this vision that there is something wrong that's taking place that's, that's desecrating the temple, that sin is against God in this. But notice this in verse 19. When Gabriel brings about, about the interpretation and the understanding, it's a, from a little bit different perspective Verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. The latter end of the indignation? We don't use terminology like that. You can translate indignation to wrath. That's another way of translating that. What he's saying is this, is that how long will this is going to be before God's wrath upon our disobedience ends? Again, the perspective that Daniel has and gives to us as we read this book as a whole. Daniel chapter 1, verse 10 or 2 says this And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of the God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels 
in the treasury of his God. Daniel reminds us God is allowing this because he's doing something in their lives. We're going to read in verse 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 7 next week. Listen to this. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. We may not make sense of God's methods, but we can trust in this, that he is at work doing things to bring us to the point where we would trust him and follow him. And you and I know, for some of us, it takes a lot before we come to the end and say, we must trust in God and not in ourselves. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are unsearchable as ways and inscrutable his judgments. Last but not least, actually, you know what I want to do? I want to read to you something from C.H. Spurgeon. I was so moved by this this week, reading it. He says this, Your troubles and sorrows are sent according to the Lord's thoughtful purpose. It is in his fixed intent and thoughtfulness that the real character of an action lies. A person might do you a good turn, but if it were accidental, you would not be overwhelmed by gratitude. When a friend's kind action is the result of deliberation, you are far more thankful. Remember, there is never a thoughtless action on God's part. His mind goes with his hand. His heart is in his actions. He thinks so much of his people that the very hairs of your head are, are also numbered, Luke 12, 7. He thinks not only of great things, but also of little things that are incidental to the great things, such again as the number of hairs on your head. Every affliction is timed and measured. Every comfort is sent with a lo loving thoughtfulness that makes it precious. The divine mind exercises great thoughtfulness towards the Lord's chosen. Nothing happens as a result of a remorseless fate. All your circumstances are ordered in wisdom by a living, thoughtful, and loving God. Our Heavenly Father knows what He is doing. Even when His way appears to be involved and complicated and we cannot untangle the threads, the Lord sees all things clearly. His breath exceeds the range of our vision, and his depth baffles our profoundest thoughts. Amen. I say amen, but I know it's also hard to accept. Last point I want to make is we must trust in God's faithfulness to his own, even to the point of death. The promise of God is this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's something that is gut-wrenching in verse 24. As Daniel wrestles with this thought, 
So many things must flood his mind. But it says this in verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. Let me tell you what it means to trust even to the point of death. Daniel, we will read in a few weeks, says in chapter 12, 1 and 2, And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over the people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen. There was a nation to that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be booked, found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The New Testament says it this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Consider this promise. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a nice way of saying those who have passed. That you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Jesus said this, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. We look for reasons to trust in God's faithfulness to our own, even to the point of death. We don't need to look any further than the cross. Because there was a Friday, and the worst things of all could have happened on a Friday. The promised king, the savior of the world, was put on a cross and died. And to everyone's eyes, hope had ended. But our hope is this. It's described in that passage. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He overcame sin and death on our behalf. And when we take the elements of communion, the band can come on up, this is what we do. We preach to ourselves. By the way, um, I was on a trail yesterday, and I rode my bike past this guy, and I had to do the double take because on his T-shirt, it said, worshiping through it. I had never heard that phrase before. And I thought, that's what we ought to do in tough times, worshiping through it. 
we come to the table as a reminder of Christ's body that was given for us and his blood that was shed for us. Because that's where our hope lies. And that's the reminder for our very souls that it may look bleak and it may look horrible and it might be tragic, but you are being held by a faithful God who loves and in the end is victorious and has given you promises that we can hold fast to. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, when things look really, really bleak and really, really tough and when it doesn't make sense to us, remind us again that you have won and in the cross we have the reminder, the promise, the deliverance of all that you've done.